Good morning, y'all. Um, so there's a, there's a trend in kind of modern worship music, and I guess it's not really a new trend, but the trend is to darken the room, do all kinds of uh, cool lights on the stage, um, maybe a smoke machine, um, and, and uh, underneath everything there's this, uh, they, we call it a pad sound, it's like a keyboard sound where you're basically holding a note and it's just like, in whatever key you're in, whatever songs you're doing. And so it kind of fills up like the silence and the empty awkwardness and whatever. Uh, and, and the effect of all of that is that it's like you're, you're trying to get everybody to block everything out and, and just focus on themselves and the Lord, right? Because the idea is if, if people feel like they're the only ones around, then really, they'll really sing and they'll be able to connect with God. And um, I don't think that's necessarily sinful, but also don't think it's true. Uh, and I think that y'all are living proof of that because hearing you guys singing with you guys uh, every Sunday is one of like the highlights of my week because we have all of the lights on. We have these ugly ceiling fans. We, uh, we, we're, not, like, we're not trying to manipulate you into anything. And when you guys sing, y'all are louder than we are. And that's the point. It, it, it's our stance that congregational singing should primarily, the primary sound of congregational singing should be the sound of the congregation singing. And uh, that's what we're trying to do up here. And I think when worship music uh, is done well, that's, that's what it accomplishes. And so I love singing with y'all every week. It makes me happy deep down in my soul. So I'm glad that you guys are here. And not, we're, we're missing some people too. And y'all are so loud this morning. And I love it. Uh, it makes me so happy. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today, if you want to open up your holy books or your holy apps to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start into that chapter today. I'm excited to get to preach to you today. Blake and I are going to be preaching more this year than we have in years past. Um, Bryce just, he can't, he, can't, he can't stick with it anymore. He needs more breaks. He's getting older. And uh, uh, so, yeah. Uh, no. Uh, today I haven't, I've named my sermon after a song, which is very surprising, I'm sure. Uh, uh, it's a Bob Dylan song called Gonna Change My Way of Thinking that he put out in 1979. Uh, Dylan professed Christ in the late 70s and made a series of albums with overtly Christian themes. And some of those songs were really great. Uh, a lot of them were not. Uh, I count this among the ones that are kind of just halfway there. But uh, the first verse, I thought, it kind of sums up the point of where we're going with First Peter chapter 4 today. And it says this, the first verse of going to change my way of thinking. It says, I'm going to change my way of thinking, make myself a different set of rules. I'm going to put my good foot forward and stop being influenced by fools. And that's, uh, that's no blowing in the wind or every grain of sand, but it, it's, it's true. Uh, and that's, that's what we're going for today. Last week, Bryce Prentice finished preaching through verses 18 to 22 in chapter 3. He finished up that chapter. Most of that is kind of a side sermon to the point that Peter is making before and after. We saw that Jesus proclaimed victory to the spirits in prison before his resurrection. Uh, we saw that in the same way God used the ark to save Noah and his family from the flood, God saves us through Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2.14 says it like this, For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
We then saw that baptism is an act of submission that illustrates um, a spiritual reality. It's an outward um, act that illustrates what God has done in us spiritually. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's a public declaration of Christ's victory over sin and death in our lives. And that's what, that's what I love about uh, the season of, uh, of Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter is that we are celebrating Christ's victory. Uh, and it's important for us to remember that. Uh, so in our text today, Peter comes back to the point he was making before, the theme of suffering like Christ. Uh, before we get into it, though, I want to re- just do, have a quick refresher on who Peter is. Because when we remember the author of whatever we're reading in Scripture, but today we're in First Peter, when we remember who Peter is, I think it sheds a different light on what we were reading, when you, when you get a, a sense of the character of the person who wrote it. So um, Peter was a fisherman who left everything behind to follow Jesus. He seems to have immediately understood that Jesus was at least from God, and eventually he came to understand that Jesus was God himself, is God himself. Uh, when Jesus asked his disciples who they would say he is, Peter was the one who first confessed, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. He was bold, he was impulsive, uh, he was a kind of a go big or go home kind of guy. He was a natural leader, so much so that he became the de facto head disciple. There was a point when Jesus was alienating a lot of people with his teaching, and he turned to his disciples and asked if they were going to leave too. And Peter was the one who said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter saw Jesus walking on the water And while everyone else is freaking out about it, he says, if it's you, let me come out there to you on the water. And he did, you know, sort of. Uh, When Jesus is telling his disciples that they are going to fall away and leave him alone to be taken, Peter is the one who said, everyone else might leave, but I won't. When they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, it was Peter who, after he woke up, drew his sword to defend Jesus and sliced off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus told him to stop, said this isn't the way, and he healed the ear of the servant before he was arrested. At this point, Peter is hurt and confused, and he runs off like everyone else, just like Jesus said he would. But he doesn't run quite as far because he follows them to see what was going to happen. And then when someone recognized him, they said, hey, you are with Jesus. And he denies knowing Jesus three times, which I think is probably the low point of Peter's life. It absolutely ruins him, which it should have. It ruins him. So when the women brought word to the disciples that Jesus was not in his tomb, that he had risen, it was Peter who ran with John, almost beat him, but didn't quite, to see if the tomb was really empty. It was Peter who jumped from the boat and swam to shore when he sees the resurrected Jesus cooking fish over a fire on the shore. And this is where Jesus kind of has a uh, come-to-Jesus meeting with Peter. And he says, I'm glad, I didn't plan on that, but I'm really glad it happened. And he tells Peter, tend my lambs. And he did. Peter was transformed. He lived a different life from that point on. He still made mistakes, big, bold ones that are recorded in Scripture. But he lived a different life. 
He was once a man who armed himself with a sword and with strength and with pride in himself, and he became a man who armed himself with the mind of Christ. So let's read verses 1 through 6 in 1 Peter chapter 4. It says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest to li- to, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Lord, as we study your word, as we try to grasp what it means and how we are to obey it, we pray that you would make yourself clear, that you would shine your light on us, and that we could see inside ourselves the, the ways that we need to repent, that we could see in you your glory, that we could see you for who you really are. And when we walk, and every time we walk away from your word, Lord, maybe when we walk away from it with a, a grander view of who you are, with a deeper view of how much you love us. And let that change and dictate the way that we live our lives every day. We love you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our first thought for the day is that, like Peter, we must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Uh, Peter begins this passage by saying, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The words since, therefore, mean that we have to look back, because this is connected to what he was saying before. Uh, So in chapter 3, he was discussing the fact that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's in verse 18, before his his side sermon. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he's getting back to it, and he's saying that because Christ suffered in the flesh for submitting to the will of God, since he endured pain and abuse on our behalf, even though he didn't deserve it, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Have the same perspective, the same attitude, the same purpose. As we've seen, suffering well is one of the main themes of this letter. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter outlined what it looks like to handle suffering the way that Christ did. He says this in verse 21, For to to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Jesus left us an example to follow in suffering. So take note of these. One, he didn't sin. In other words, he wasn't suffering because he deserved it, because he did something wrong. Two, he didn't deceive. 
He didn't try to weasel his way out of suffering. Three, he didn't return evil for evil, but what did he do? Four, he entrusted himself to the judgment of God, knowing that he would be found blameless. And he did this so that we could be healed, that we could hate and forsake sin and live in righteousness. This is how Peter says we are to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. But this does not sound like armor. It doesn't sound like protection. It sounds like weakness. It sounds like giving up. This is the opposite of what we've been taught to do generally in life. That's because for the Christian, our battle is primarily a spiritual one and not a physical one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The mind of Christ seems like an unconventional piece of armor because it is the weapon of a different war. And I love that Peter is the one who's telling us to arm ourselves this way. Look at the change in this guy. He was the one who drew his sword. He was going to fight for Jesus. He did fight for Jesus, thinking that the physical battle was the one he was called to fight. But Jesus transformed him, and now he's telling us to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, who laid his own life down. To arm ourselves with a weapon possessing divine power. In fact, you don't see much at all in the New Testament instructing Christians to defend themselves physically. There's no prohibition on self-defense or weapons. Jesus knew Peter had a sword the night that he was betrayed, and he seemed fine with it. It's good for Christians to take reasonable steps to defend themselves and those that they love. But the clear emphasis of Jesus' teaching and his way of life, as well as the example of the apostles, is that the key weapon in our spiritual battle is suffering well and entrusting ourselves to the Lord. This is willingly losing in the eyes of the world, even if we lose our lives, in order to trust and obey the Lord. This is holding our own lives, our well-being, our rights, our hopes, our dreams, with an open hand for God's glory. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we more prepared for a physical attack or a spiritual one? Or maybe just, are we prepared for a spiritual attack at all? Because a physical attack might come, but a spiritual attack will come again and again and again. And the key to winning the spiritual battle is often losing the physical one. It's hard. Like, this isn't some sort of, like, easy, like, magic trick or, like, new level of Christianity. Like, it is hard to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. But it's worth it. So since Christ suffered in the flesh, we arm ourselves with the same mindset. Why? He goes on to say, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Ceased from sin. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is one of those sentences that if you take it out of context, could mean something wildly different than what Peter meant by it. Suffering in and of itself doesn't keep us from sin. Uh, That would be like saying people with gym memberships 
are healthier, fitter people. Therefore, to make myself healthier, I'm going to buy a gym membership. Then I will be fitter and healthier. That's not it, as I am learning firsthand. The reason that people with gym memberships are generally fitter and healthier is the commitment to the work of exercising that they do. That's what makes them fit and healthy. There have actually been various sects of people throughout history who physically harmed themselves in the name of Jesus, thinking that if they were regularly in physical pain, I'm talking weird, crazy stuff, regularly in physical pain, they would cease from sin. That is insanity. That is not what scripture teaches. Peter's point about those who have suffered in the flesh ceasing from sin is that the reason they aren't sinning is because they have submitted to the will of God. This submission is what caused a break with sin. Suffering is the byproduct of that. We are no longer living purely for our own desires and appetites. We're living the rest of our lives for the will of God. This doesn't mean we never sin. It means that sin is no longer calling the shots. We still sin as Christians, but sin no longer has dominion over us. Listen to what Romans 6 says. This is the passage I preach to myself all the time. Romans 6, verse 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For, who, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We've gone from a life of bondage to the desires of the flesh to a life submitted to the will of God. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. If that is true, then sin no longer reigns in us. And so we shouldn't like hand over the keys and let it reign. This brings us to our second point of the day, which is we must leave sin where it lies. We must leave sin, leave sin where it lies. Verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time past suffices. In other words, letter A under here is, you've already lived in sin enough. You've already lived in sin enough. Jesus saved some of us when we were kids, uh, kids who had not participated in any of the sins in this list, kids who never got a chance to sow our wild oats. It doesn't matter. You lived with sin as your master long enough. Many of us were saved as adults, adults with a history, so to speak, but it doesn't matter. In Christ, we are all the same in that however long we lived under the dominion of sin, it was enough. We don't need it anymore. We never really did, but now we know, and we must never go back to it. We are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. The 90s were weird, right? They were crazy. Um, and so there was this movie that came out in 1989 that I, I honestly don't know why I was able to watch it growing up, but I did. 
Um, it was a cinematic masterpiece, if your standards are really low. Uh, it was a movie called Weekend at Bernie's. And so Weekend at Bernie's, if you're unfamiliar, I cannot commend this movie. You should not go and watch this movie. Um, everything I remember about it uh, is not good, except for it illustrates this point really well. Uh, so the, basically, there's these two guys, younger, they work for an insurance company, and their boss, who is loaded, invites them out to his mansion of a beach house for Labor Day weekend. And this guy throws amazing parties every weekend, right? It's legendary. And so they're like, Bernie invited us to his mansion. Like, this is going to be great. So they show up on Friday for the big weekend-long party, and Bernie is dead. They don't know what happened to him. It's not important how it happened, but he's dead. And so they're like, people are going to think that we killed this guy. Right? Like, we're the strangers to this party. They're going to think we killed this guy. And so they were, they're trying to figure out, like, well, what do we do? We can't, like, we can't call the cops. They're gonna... So in the middle of them figuring all this out, people start showing up for the party. And they're so unconcerned. Like, Bernie, they have these, like, dark shades on Bernie. And people are so unconcerned that they don't notice that he's dead. And so all these people show up and start partying. And the guys are like, I guess, like, I don't know, can we sneak out? Like, I... So they just kind of, like, ride it for a while. Well, then they realize how popular this Bernie guy is and all the people showing up to the party. And they're like, you know, if we just maintain this ruse a little bit longer, we could probably have a pretty great weekend, right? And maybe we could, like, shift the blame to somebody else if they think it's us. And so all weekend long, they keep up this, this ruse that Bernie is not dead. He, they keep the shades on him. They have him sitting out on the, the, the beach chair for a while. They put drinks in his hand. They... they, they, they uh, rig up the system of ropes and pulleys to, like, move his hands and wave at people. It's ridiculous. Um, and so they, the longer it goes on, the harder it gets to maintain the facade until eventually everything comes out. Um, but isn't that what we do with sin, right? Like, isn't that what we do with sin sometimes? Our old self has been put to death, and we have been raised to walk in newness of life. But we go back from time to time because we think we want a taste of the old life. So we convince ourselves that X, Y, Z is okay, and we put on this ruse of reanimating our dead way of life. It is ridiculous. It is as ridiculous as the plot of that movie sounds. If you are a Christian, your old self is dead. Leave it in the grave. Don't try to put dark shades on it and have one last weekend of glory. It will not end well. However long we lived in sin was enough. We once lived only for our own desires, but now we are called to submit our desires to the will of God and be shaped by him to live according to reordered desires. Human desires generally are not sinful in themselves. It's what we do with them. It's the, the, the importance we place on them. We get our priorities out of whack and we serve those desires rather than take those desires and serve God with them. And that's what the Lord does in us through sanctification. He reorders our desires. It's a process, but submission to his will will lead to this reformation in our hearts. So since Christ suffered, we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, submitting to the will of God and breaking with sin for the rest of the time that we live in the flesh, because the time that is past was enough for sin. Then notice what he says in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Letter B under here is, abstaining from sin is strange and offensive. 
the stances that we take for, uh, for honoring God will seem weird compared with the rest of the world. There's no way around that. Uh, I think we can be winsome about it. We can live incarnationally. We can make connections with people who don't believe, people who disagree with us. Um, and we can be kind to them, and we can show the love of Christ to them. We can be friends. But it is strange to abstain from sin, especially if it's something that is generally accepted in society as being a normal thing that everybody does. Whether our stances come from direct commands in Scripture or personal convictions that are based on scriptural wisdom, we will get, at the very least, strange looks and raised eyebrows. Uh, and at the worst, we'll be persecuted or isolated or imprisoned or killed just for making personal choices to honor God. We're not even talking about like preaching to other people and confronting sin. Like This is just if you abstain from sin because you are trying to honor God, it's going to offend people. So this is why we shouldn't be jerks. The gospel is going to offend people well enough. Right? The gospel has to offend you in order to save you. It has to shine light on the dark corners of our hearts to do its work. And that is not enjoyable, and people will buck against it. So don't be a jerk. Let the gospel offend people. And if we must suffer, let it be for doing good, for obeying the Lord. That's the point Paul was making in, in chapter 3. Not Paul. Peter was making in chapter 3. Don't let it surprise you when the world is taken aback when you abstain from sin. Uh, I found this quote from the Bible Project, which, side note, is a really great resource um, for studying scripture and getting a, a good understanding, especially of big picture issues, bibleproject.com. Uh, and in their video on the book of 1 Peter, it says this, God's people are a misunderstood minority living under the rule of a different king. Persecution offers a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. This is what happened with Jesus. He was absolutely misunderstood, which is an understatement, to the point of death. And suffering, John Piper said that God will judge the living and the dead. We don't have to. They're all going to have their day in court. They will give an account. Either they will be, a help, either they will be held accountable for their sins, or they will trust in Jesus as their substitute. And since we don't have to judge them, or take vengeance, or anything like that, we are free. We're free to love them generously, just like Jesus did, because he knew the end from the beginning. He knew the end of the story, and now we do too. We know how this is going to turn out, and so we're free. We don't have to be the jury and the judge. We don't have to stand up and fight the battle that we could never win anyway. Jesus did that. It's not vindictive to be comforted by this fact, uh, the fact that those who malign us will be judged. We pray for them. We hope for good for them. Uh, we share the gospel with them in our speech, in our actions, and we leave the rest to the Lord. He will take vengeance or he will show grace, but either way, everything will be made new and made right. Even when it's painful, we don't have to worry. Justice will be done and it will be accomplished by the just one. So we arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking, uh, that we submit ourselves to God, breaking with sin, even through suffering, because we've already lived enough of our life in sin. When people put us down for not joining them, we entrust ourselves to God, who will bring judgment and make all things new. And that leads us to the last point for today, which is that we must live in the Spirit. Uh, it comes from verse 6, which says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit.
the way God does. We'll start with the strangest part of the sentence and then work out from there. Uh, Peter, again, is not talking about preaching to dead people. Scripture is pretty clear that we get to live once and then the judgment. There's no purgatory where we can work off our sins or have people pray us into God's presence. We don't get a do-over, right? Bryce discussed that recently in one of his sermons. And because that is what Scripture teaches elsewhere, we see it as one of the reasons it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to be preaching the gospel to unbelieving dead people so that they can be saved. The best way to understand Scripture is to let Scripture interpret itself. Uh, One of our core values is that we are to think biblically, right? To let the Bible shape the way that we think, the way that we understand and process the world. And so letting Scripture interpret itself is one of the key factors of that. If you encounter something you don't understand, look at it in context. Who is writing? To whom is the writing addressed? What point is the author making? How would this original audience have taken what he's saying? What does this particular author have to say about the issue elsewhere? And then what does the rest of scripture have to say about this issue and about this author? It's okay to get help from people when you get stuck, but if your help starts offering up an explanation that is not based on scripture, run. The Bible teachers you can trust are the ones who always point back to scripture, even if it's harder that way. Even if it leads to them saying, I'm not really sure. The ones who point back to scripture and whose lives back up their testimony are the Bible teachers that you can trust. So what this sentence is saying is, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That's, in fact, that's how several other reputable translations put it. Those who are now dead. Which makes a lot more sense when we plug it back in. So let's, let's look at the rest of that sentence with that understanding. The key to understanding the sentence uh, as a whole is looking at the word for, because it connects this sentence, uh, which sounds weird out of context, to the sentence before it. The sentence before it is the one that said, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he continues, for this is why. So verse 6 kind of exists under the umbrella of verses 4 and 5. People will malign you for abstaining from sin, but they will give an account to God. We are entrusting ourselves to the great judge. And that is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, those who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. To our adversaries, it looks like we are the ones who lose. When we suffer, it looks like we are getting what we deserve for being disruptive and judgmental prudes or naive children or whatever. Our archaic traditions and outdated way of life suck the joy out of life and we bring everyone down with us. So we deserve to be judged in the world's eyes. In many cases, this judgment leads to persecution and death. Peter was writing to persecuted believers and they all knew people who had been killed for being Christians. They were under threat of that every day. Peter would become one of these people who was killed for his faith. So it looks like we lose. All our following after Christ leads to nothing but death, and then that's it. But in reality, we're more alive than ever. We've been made alive in the Spirit. Though we are judged in the flesh by man, we are made alive in the Spirit by God himself. And it says we live in the Spirit the way God does. And Peter draws comfort from that. He says, this is why the gospel was preached to our friends who were martyred, like Stephen. Stephen lost. 
He was brutally and publicly murdered for his faith in Christ. But even though he was maligned to the point of execution, Peter says that people like him live in the spirit the way that God does. Even the strongest, most terrifying king on earth can't kill that. And that's his point. We are trusting ourselves to Jesus, our great advocate, the supreme and final judge, because he has made us alive in the spirit. So it doesn't matter how we are judged in the flesh. It doesn't matter if we are condemned in this life. Because even if we die, we live. Stephen's story didn't end with him being dead on the ground. Everybody else thought it did. Everybody else declared victory. But it wasn't true. He won that battle. Paul said, Paul, who was standing there watching it happen, who later converted, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way, we win. Jesus wins. Unbelievers will have to give an account to him who judges the living and the dead, and their defense will come up short. But we will enter the only plea anyone can really have, and that is Jesus. Jesus knew this power when he lived on earth. He was armed not with a sword, but with a way of thinking, an attitude of the heart that was completely submitted to the will of God. He knew that he would lose in the world's eyes, and that he, the sovereign king and the great high priest, would be judged worthy of death by nobodies and wannabes. If anybody had a right to be upset about this way of thinking and this way of life, it was Jesus. It was hard and it was painful. He could have and he deserved to call legions of angels to come and to stop the whole thing and to make it clear who the boss was. But he knew what it meant to be alive in the spirit. He left us perfect footsteps to follow. A narrow path, but a protected path toward sure and final victory. But here's the thing to remember. The victory is already won. We have already been made made alive in the spirit. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you are spiritually alive right now. You have access through Christ to abundant life today and every day that we are here in our bodies living in the flesh. And we have access to eternal life in the world to come. So we can trust Jesus with the ending of our story, and we do, but we need to trust him now, today, to live in the spirit. We have to start living in the spirit now. And when we do, we never stop. Even if we are executed. Even if things get the worst that they could possibly be, it can't kill us in that way. We are alive spiritually. So the question then is how? How do we live this life of the spirit? In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Kenneth Birding is an author and a seminary professor who wrote a book called Walking in the Spirit. And he says that walking in the spirit is the central metaphor for describing what it means to live as a Christian. The person who walks according to the spirit will in fact have the essence of the law fulfilled in his life. His book uh, examines this metaphor mainly through the lens of Romans chapter 8, where Paul tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that we've been set free from the law of sin and death to live according to the Spirit. 
So I want to close out today by briefly listing some, suggest- some suggestions from his book uh, that show us how to walk in the Spirit. Uh, these won't be on the screen, so you can take note of them if you want. Or you can just read the entirety of Romans chapter 8, because it's all there. Um, but yeah, so to walk in the Spirit, we must, number one, set our minds on the things of the Spirit. It comes from Romans 8, 5. Set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Birding compares it to this riddle. How do you remove all of the air from a drinking glass? And the answer is to fill it with something else. The desires of the Spirit are contrary to the desires of the flesh, and we are to fill ourselves with the desires of the Spirit. Start here and stay here. Fill yourselves up with something different, and we will set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Next, we, too, put to death the deeds of the body. It's in Romans 8.13. Put to death the deeds of the body. Remember that we are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We cannot resist sin on our own, but by the Spirit, we can. Because sin no longer has dominion over us, the Spirit does. Number three, we are to be led by the Spirit. It's Romans 8.14. This, nat- this is naturally connected to setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. We fill our minds and hearts with the truth of Scripture, and we apply that wisdom to our daily lives. The Spirit will guide us and prompt us based on those truths, and we must follow. Number four is we are to know the fatherhood of God. It's Romans eight fifteen to 17. We are to know the fatherhood of God. There's a lot of discussion in our culture today about identity, who we are, how we define it, how it changes, so on. But these verses outline a real and true change of identity. We are adopted as children of God. We were once enemies of God, living in fear that not only has God like, made us not his enemies anymore, he's made us his children. He's not making us his stepchildren. He's not making us any kind of like just ward or anything. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are truly and completely adopted by God our Father. Which changes the perspective of life in every way. Five, we, are to, we hope in the Spirit. It's Romans 8, 22 to 25. We hope in the Spirit. This isn't a wish upon a star hope. This is a, a sure and excited expectation, right? It's an eager longing that we know will be fulfilled. We don't wonder if one day our prince will come. We expect and know that King Jesus will. It's a sure thing. And lastly, number six, we pray in the Spirit. That comes from Romans 8, 26 to 28. We pray in the Spirit. We are weak. And when we pray, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He aligns our hearts with the will of God. And when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. His Spirit is within us. And in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. That's how we arm ourselves. The way of the kingdom of God is not like the way of the world. It is often the inverse of it. Kingdom values are upside down from the world's values. Or it might be better to say that the world's values are upside down compared with the values of the kingdom. If you look at the life of Peter or the life of Paul, you see this illustrated. They both were one sort of man, trusting in one sort of living, who were transformed, who were made alive in the spirit, and then lived a very different sort of life in imitation of and in love for their Savior. May the same be said of each of us. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the work that you did in Peter's life. He armed himself with your attitude, your way of thinking, your mindset, to the point that he was killed for it, just like you were. He followed those steps that you call us to follow. He left us a good example, just like you did. Lord, teach us what this means in our lives. To arm ourselves with your mindset, to leave sin where it lies, to live in the spirit. Lord, don't let us settle for whatever is holding us back. Our sins, our limitations, our past. Help us to let those things go and to draw near to you that we might walk in the spirit, that we might walk in the light as you are in the light. Lord, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us and transform us for your glory's sake. We pray in Christ's name.